4 o'clock football frenzy. Presented by Dustin DeHart of Nova Home Loans. Call him now at 702-577-2600. The 4 o'clock football frenzy on Cofield and Company. Company. Before we get to all the football, you know, we were talking last hour, Adam Candy, about the uh, war between the pitchers and the hitters, and specifically in this case, in this case, it was uh, Lucas Giolito of the White Sox and Josh Donaldson of the Twins. Donaldson hits a dong off of Giolito, then crosses the plate and is yelling about sticky stuff and holding his hands, and uh, Giolito said he's a blanket pest, and he also said, if you're going to talk trash, do it to my face. This is like full-on dorkdom now that's happening. A video just out of Josh Donaldson. By the way, if you want to follow all these battles, a good uh, Twitter handle is at StickyCheck. <laughs> okay. He says, Donaldson says of Giolito, guess what, Mr. Giolito? Your fastball spin rate's down 200. Your curveball spin rate's down four to 500. We're seriously doing this. Well, I'm so glad that... Major League Baseball has made it so that its players are really in touch with what the common fan wants to talk about. Let's not worry about home runs. Let's not worry about surprise playoff teams. Let's have our stars arguing about spin rates. Pulse of the fan, baby. Pulse of the fan. But as you suggested earlier, this is all a a grand plan, a work from the bosses of baseball to get you know, all the minions fighting amongst themselves so that when they get to the negotiating table, maybe they're going to be splintered uh, in the labor talks. Absolutely. And and that's Bobby Baseball right there. That That is Rob Manfred. Bobby Baseball is going to prove to be so much worse than Bud Selig. Even though he's a Selig protege, he's going to make you wish that you had a hologram of a used car salesman as the commissioner of Major League Baseball instead of him. You know, when I think of trailblazers, those pushing for diversity, equality in the NFL, the first name that comes to mind, especially of late, is Daniel Snyder. Candy's doing a great job, the football team owner. Uh, Daniel Snyder has become a pioneer um, when it comes to racial equality, when it comes to uh, gender equality. Um through no pressure, he decided, I'm finally done with the name Redskins. I don't, I don't want it anymore. We're, we're calling it the Washington football team. And then as the stories came out about uh, the many, many women who were harassed uh, within the Washington football team organization, uh, he took the bold, bold step today. And, and by the way, let's, let's not short the man on credit. This was not easy. Uh, he decided to install a female CEO of the team right that's that's progress right i mean we look over the course of we look over the course of football history and amy trask who's so uh popular in raiders lore and uh, active on social media amy trask was really the the the, uh, the pioneer there the groundbreaker and there haven't been a lot of other female executives in football and so i think we should stop the story right here cofield i think we should just say good on you dan snyder for putting a female ceo in charge of your team is that where we stop it? What is there? Is there more? <laughs> there might be a problem. Oh, oh, are you? I'm sorry. Are you talking about the part where that female CEO is his wife? 
Oh, right. Oh, gosh, that seems convenient. Uh, yeah, Tanya Snyder is that new female uh, CEO <laughs> of the team. Um, and and if anything we know about Dan Snyder, it's that he he is a fair man. Uh, he would never uh, never show nepotism. So I'm sure there was a competitive application process uh, uh, for this. There were lots of people considered. And now, uh, he, yeah, now his wife is the CEO. And Cofield, the best part is it doesn't look craven at all. It doesn't look like it's just a hollow gesture to try to make people happy while his team is being sued over sexual harassment, while his team still doesn't have a name other than the Washington football team after they offended Native American communities forever. Um, the best part is just the purity of heart uh, of Daniel Snyder and his new female CEO, Tanya S. Snydog is a swell fella. A headline, what's next? After New England, Stephon Gilmore goes public about his contract. Uh-oh. That ain't a Belichickian thing to do. I tell you, man, when I saw this story, I thought to myself, Stephon Gilmore is a bad man, and he has been one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL for the last few years. But one thing I would not take on is the hoodie and a contract negotiation because Bill Belichick has shown time and again that he is not to be pushed around and that if he thinks you're done – He's going to cut you a year early rather than a year late. And Stephon Gilmore started this whole thing by commenting on a tweet about the top 10 highest paid cornerbacks in the NFL and saying, ah, okay, when he's not listed among the top 10 cornerbacks in the NFL. Now, mind right. you, he's coming on the back end of a pretty lucrative five-year deal here, but uh, I would venture to say he's probably not going to end up in line for another lucrative five-year deal, and pushing the hoodie seems to be a less than ideal way to go when you know how ruthless he is with his players. Another headline, Raiders running back preview in the athletic signing. Kenyon Drake was strange, but he creates a loaded backfield with Josh Jacobs. All right, Adam Candy, glass overflowing Adam Candy on the Raiders. Weapons galore in the backfield for the Las Vegas Raiders. Look, there are things that I like loaded in my life. I, I like a good loaded baked potato. Um, I, I want real bacon, not the damn bacon bits. I want some sour cream. I want some butter. Can do chili in the right situation. I I want my baked potatoes loaded. Um, my backfields, maybe not so much. Uh, because, okay, I'll hear the argument. You put another weapon to the backfield. You're going to make Josh Jacobs an MVP candidate, says King Gruden. And so, great. I would just say, if you're going to try to build your team around a star backfield, if you're going to use a first-round pick on a running back in Josh Jacobs, if you're going to go out and give Kenyon Drake $12 million over the course of two years, when you already have Jalen Richard in the fold for two years and $7 million, I would just ask you this. Go back over, let's just even say the last 10 years as the NFL has shifted, and look at the Super Bowl champions and find me the loaded backfield that has been a Super Bowl champion, that has been a successful team, that is the blueprint that you're going for. Because I can't find it. I don't see it at all because that's not the way the NFL is today. And the article in The Athletic from Tashawn Reed talks about how Gruden values running backs more highly than other franchises. Hey, look, there aren't any other coaches in the league who still have their job right now with a three-year track record like John Gruden. So maybe the question needs to be asked at some level, is Gruden's philosophy on building a team going to work? And I don't know that a loaded backfield 
when you go look at the Super Bowl champions of the past few years, tells you that it's going to go anywhere. Running backs going the way of the NBA center. Unless it's Nikola Jokic. If you have someone who's that transcendent, sure. Sure. But Derrick Henry has been pretty damn fantastic for the Tennessee Titans, and I don't remember the last time the Titans were in the Super Bowl. We'll examine this. Our football insider on Wednesdays is Caleb Herring, former UNLV quarterback, one of the voices of UNLV football. And we'll certainly get into uh, the earth-shattering, not unexpected, uh, ruling today at the last minute by the NCAA that, hey, NIL is here. Whatever your state decides to do, whatever your school decides to do, whatever your conference thinks is right, those are the rules right now. Essentially, there are no rules. Dustin DeHart of Nova Home Loans brings you the 4 o'clock football frenzy. Dial 702-577-2600 now. Home prices have never been higher and interest rates have never been lower. Get your mortgage tune-up today by calling 577-2600. He was absolutely sensational. There's no way around it. You've got to give credit where credit is due. He answered the call. Playoff P, not pandemic P. Playoff P showed up, and he showed up big time. I mean, you just look around, and it was a total, total team effort. The Clippers deserve a boatload of credit. I did it. Most people didn't believe that they would win this game, but they believed that they would win this game, and they pulled it out. Hanging at the Battle Born Broadcast Center, it's Cofield and Company. Stephen A. Giving kudos to uh, Paul George, of course, I'm misspeaking a little bit there. If uh, if most people didn't think that the Clippers could win the game, then it would have been Suns minus, I don't know, 25. So uh, not the case. So there were some people who believed they could win the game. They could be in the game. They were in the game. And now the series continues. Adam Candy's here at Cofield. Caleb Herring joins us every Wednesday to talk a little football, talk a little NBA. Caleb, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing really good. Can't complain. I'm, 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 I'm living a great life right now. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you and I were trading some texts, and I think I got you confused. I was asking about baseball in uh, high school. You uh, you were mostly a basketball and football player. Yeah, mostly basketball, football. I actually tried my I tried baseball my freshman year. You know, the baseball coach knew I played quarterback, and he saw me throw, and he's like, "Man, you probably be able to pitch, or you know, just trying it out." Never really played, um, so I got out there for a little while and, and took a a a shot from a ball coming back at the mound on off the shoulder. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go run track during, <laughs> during this season. So, yeah, so baseball, although I love baseball, I, I just I never really got serious into playing it. Can any of us on this show imagine being Shohei Otani? And how, like, I still think he, like, the Otani mania is on. I still think he's actually undercovered for what he's freaking doing, pitching, and hitting in the major leagues. Yeah, and it's that's the part in the major league. I think a lot of people during their career could probably have done both, but to do it at the major league level when when hitting is when you think about it, darn near impossible, right? In, in the major leagues, um, to be able to do to to be able to, to pitch at the level he does, which takes an incredible amount of practice and skill to be able to to do that in the major leagues as well, and then also hit sufficiently enough. And this is kind of the thing with baseball as a whole. I think when you look at you know some of the stars that have been in in baseball outside of the baseball world, people don't really get to fully appreciate the difficulty or the stardom that could be had by some of the bigger names in baseball, right? And and I think this is one of those cases where you've got somebody that is doing something that 
really hasn't been done ever in the history of the sport. And it's not getting, like you said, it's undercovered. And this is a chance for baseball to kind of get some of the spotlight on their players like the NBA or the NFL does to a lesser degree. But it's just not there for baseball for whatever reason. It just They just can't get this kind of stardom right as far as uh, promoting it and getting it out there to, to help the sport thrive a little bit more. Yep, and they've uh, they've got like six weeks here. I've been joking about it. They've got about six weeks. Football's a little bit slower right now, but, I mean, it's right around the corner. And, of course, we have lots of football to talk about, even during the slow period. Uh, I don't know if you just heard us talking about the weird story with Dan Snyder and his wife. What do you think of this one? Is the league is pushing for diversity, more female involvement in the sport? That's got to be the most disrespectful thing that I've seen someone do in a position of hiring power. Like, I, honestly, I, 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 this is not a, a you know any shade to – Miss Snyder, right? Like, this is not saying she's not qualified or anything like that, but it's like you're a, a franchise that's been in hot water where over diversity in your, in your, in your thinking and your discrimination practice or, you know, uh, or, you know, sexual, even there's been things about like sexual assault and women in the workplace and from the no HR, things like that with in your program organization. And then like the hire that you make that is supposed to represent diversity and inclusion is the wife, the spouse. Of the guy in charge. I, to me, that's just like, are we are we really letting that you know the discretionary hiring get this kind of obvious? Where it's like, yeah, we're hiring a woman. We're trying to get diverse in our in our workplace, but it's your wife, dude. Like, I mean, like uh, to me, that it's not a very grand gesture if we're going to say like this is a morally good thing to add diversity, and I'm going to hire my wife, who pretty much is going to think the way I think. It's the optics of it. You have to look at it that way. So I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. I don't want to make a big. I don't want to, you know, get in trouble or anything about making making it look worse than it. But it just looks bad. I, I don't know how you justify hiring your wife for that position. I don't know. Hey, Candy, I want you to jump in on uh, and and repeat uh, some of the story we just talked about with the uh, Raiders and the ranking of the running back and the depth in the backfield and that they're loaded and and run it by Caleb because uh, maybe this is cyclical and there's going to be some big. Come back with the running back. Go ahead, Candy. Uh, give what we were just talking about to uh, Caleb. So the article from Deshaun Reed in The Athletic talks about how the Raiders really didn't need to go out and add a running back to their room, but that they did, and that that gives them what they described as a loaded running back core with Josh Jacobs and now Kenyon Drake and Jalen Richard as well with Alec Gingold at fullback. And the, the interesting part that I saw – was the article says John Gruden knows that he values running backs more highly than the rest of the NFL does. Um, and I guess I'm curious from your perspective, how much of a running game is about the running back? How much of a running game is about the offensive line? And to some degree, how much of the running game in 2021 is about your ability to throw the ball as well? Uh, that's. I mean, that's a very good question. I think that's what every offensive coordinator or team builder has to ask himself when they're building a team. I think it can be all of those things. It can be uh, your run game can be dependent on how good you pass the ball and stretch the field and make opponents respect uh, your ability to stretch the field with, with formationally with a lot of receivers um, and personnel that are receivers and then being able to run within those big lanes. Uh, if you build your team with a dominant offensive line, there's been samples of, let's say, the Wisconsin Badgers when uh, back in college football ranks, of course, when they, you know every 
all five of the starting offensive linemen for the Wisconsin, I think they were they won the Rose Bowl or went to the Rose Bowl this season. All five of the offensive linemen uh, were drafted in the NFL draft, um, and that team led the nation in rushing. Had two running backs that were, uh, I believe, thousand yard rushers or more. I, I don't quote me on that, but they were a dominant running team. And everybody understands that Wisconsin is basically offensive lineman university, right? Um, and that's how they build strong run games. And you've seen the running backs that go there and have success um, in the running game. And that's a one way you can build a team up as far as, you know, dominant running games or having a good running game. And then you just have special running backs who you say, here's the ball, go get me five yards. Or here's the ball, carry the team. That's kind of what, you know, Derrick Henry could be considered. Um, if you go back in history, Barry Sanders, one of those guys where it's like, you don't have to have much around him. He's going to make things happen with the running game as far as, as much as he can, at least. And that doesn't always equal winning, but, you know, your running game's fine. Um, then you can even go to multi, the uh, multiple playbook with how you attack the running game. And you look at teams like the Ravens in present-day football, where Lamar Jackson, your quarterback, is basically a second running back who's always on the field. you got your starting running back and you got your quarterback, who are both running backs, essentially, in that offense. Um, so that's a way that having a loaded backfield, I guess, if you want to use John Gruden's words, could help impact winning. Um, but there's multiple ways you can do it, and it just depends on what your plan is. And I think that's the, the biggest thing for any GM or president of, or, or coach or offensive coordinator is what do you have talent-wise, um, what are you capable of doing with the roster, how do you want to construct your roster, and then what is your plan? Does your plan work? That's, it's really not that hard, but it is kind of hard. And I think one of the biggest examples of how the running game still can impact football is the success of the Ravens this past season. Nobody expected, with the way that the league has been trending, um, with the air attack and, and passing ball being so important, nobody would have expected that, let's say, the Ravens would have the success that they've had um, and being in the playoffs and in contention for the AFC Championship for the past three or four, three seasons, I would say. Um, the Tennessee Titans, who can pass the ball but are a predominantly run-oriented team, the success of run games, I think, is, is still important to winning. And it's sort of the same effect in basketball with a three-pointer. Yeah, everybody wants to do it because the stats say you can, but how many teams have actually won the championship with this pass-only style of play? Um, so the strength of building a run game can be done in a variety of different ways. It's just a matter of how you want to approach doing it, which way may be uh, cheaper to do it. I mean, if you're trying to build an offensive line, that's five guys that you're going to have to pay as opposed to filling it with good running backs. Uh, maybe you just need to pay two and, and to get an established running game but we'll see how it works out i i don't know if i would personally want to have a loaded running back uh stable um i think there's more creative ways that you can get a running game going but we'll see if it works out it's kind of an old school throwback thought for the Raiders. we'll see if it works out caleb herring's with us uh there's a list out from sporting news one to 130 ranking all the college football coaches uh one saban two dabo sweeney 126 near the bottom is Marcus Arroyo of UNLV seems a bit unfair. Uh, yeah, you know, I saw it. It was like, wow. I mean, geez. It's the first head coaching gig, right, with UNLV. So kind of in the coaching rank as far as head coaching goes, uh, an unknown, and then your sample size is a winless season. Rough, but I, there's an argument where you can understand where someone who isn't, you know, in the film room with him or isn't really, hasn't really seen his philosophies or seen his, the way he is able to, to maximize talent or to, to generate creativity in a playbook, for instance. You haven't really had that sample size, at least without his name being stamped on it um, in a major way. So I, 
I think the win of the season definitely has something to do with it. But still, that I mean, it just sucks to look at. You know, like the, uh, he probably doesn't care or look at that kind of thing. Maybe I'd, I'd hope not because that would definitely be a shot to the ego, right? But um, like I said, the win of the season is probably the the, the biggest factor behind that. Um, but I, you got to say that the guy's got some sort of. I mean, somebody had to be you know last, I guess. But the guy's got some ability to coach. And you look at, I would say one of the things I would say just the affinity that. Uh, that Justin Herbert talks about him now as an NFL star and the way that Justin Herbert has referenced him multiple times in the press and um, that that bond that, that a coach is able to build with the player and the lessons he imparted in him that are ultimately leading to success in the NFL level, I think that maybe could be taken into consideration to bump him up the list a little bit. But, man, that's a tough pill to swallow. I think a lot of Mountain West coaches would say that, that's a tough pill to swallow where they, where they finished up. And it's interesting, too. It opens up this whole debate about is good coaching have in college at least having the best program? I mean, you look at the guys at the top of the list; they're generally the top programs with the best talent. Um, and the bigger the talent pool, kind of the the bigger the gap between the best players and the worst players. And and you know, some people would say that maybe it takes a lot more to coach a bad team and to have any kind of success on a bad team. That takes way better coaching than it would for say Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney to just kind of roll the ball out there and say, hey. You guys are better. Just make sure you play better every week. But, you know, who knows? There's there's a lot of room for discussion on how you assess and, and grade coaching. Much the same way you assess the success of a college quarterback coming out of college in, 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 his, draft, uh, in his draft stock. So that, that's a tough pill, though, for Marcus Arroyo. Well, we talk about college coaches and, and their value to players and how they guide players, and maybe this is another situation – where that advice is going to be something that's crucial when we talk about the name, image, and likeness news that came down today, that the NCAA is essentially throwing the doors open, saying, yep, whatever state laws are, great. If there are no state laws, great. Uh, you know, here are the interim rules, and here we go. Uh, what do you think are going to be the challenges for players navigating what seems to be a pretty wide-open landscape here? I, I'm going to say this. This is the second time in a row that your segue has been like, oh, that was brilliant dude have you been working on this but like, <laughs> but, but to get to it I, I think you're absolutely right there's already exist some hurdles in coaching in the realm of coaching or the art of coaching i'd call it um and college that don't exist especially in college football that don't exist in any other coaching realm where there's this large number of people with you know the scholarship rules the recruiting obligations the academic eligibility and the list goes on about the things that a college coach has to worry about, orchestrate by himself, essentially. You know, the AD has some say, but that you're really left to your own devices to kind of do all of that and manage people. Where in the NFL, let's say, you have somebody who's over that, a GM who's over personnel decisions and an owner who's supplying the money. You don't have to worry about school and things like that. So I would say college coaching is more demanding in some ways, um, and the ability to connect with players is only going to be complicated when a player, let's say, is – more distracted now with not just staying eligible for school, being in practice and improving and competing on the field, but now um, there's a whole new world of entrepreneurship that may be open with this name, image, and likeness um, bag that nobody knows. It's, it's, it's a new frontier as far as college sport goes. It's a great frontier to embark on, and it should have been you know, a challenge we tackled a long time ago before you know the money and the NCAA and the, the potential for this kind of thing got to a point where it can get out of control with things like YouTube and social media where guys could blow up with this, right? And it doesn't have to be the best player 
on the team, which is kind of the, the, the thing that people are kind of running with now. There was, you know, YouTube stars, and I forget what year this was, I can't even remember the guy's name, where he, uh, he had to make a decision between playing football as a kicker and, and his YouTube success because he's getting paid by YouTube. And he picked YouTube. And where he is now, he has a very successful business with his YouTube and merchandising and things like that. He's, he's living a good life without football. There's going to be guys that now have the ability to capitalize on themselves and their popularity as athletes um, and as uh, well-known names in the social ranks of sports and media to be able to capitalize on that and make some. Imagine now the college coaches amongst all the other issues that they have to deal with. Now they have to deal with the ego of a guy who just made a million dollars last year on his YouTube channel or his Twitch stream or whatever the case may be that now these guys can capitalize on. I, I appreciate that it's a great opportunity for the kids and the players to capitalize on it, which they should, but it just opens up another hat that the coaches have to put on or another issue that programs will have to worry about. Who's going to manage you know, the name and image and likeness that we push out on behalf of our kids? Is that something that we can even entice players to come play for us with? Hey, we got this team that will help you guys with your image and help you guys brand yourself. So um, it's a new warm. I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the change. I'll see how it, we'll see how it works out. Um, but it, it definitely makes it a little harder for coaches to be able to, to manage personalities in an already crowded space. So um, we'll see. Good points, Caleb. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week. All right, guys. Have a good one. Take care. Candy, can you imagine being some veteran coach who's grinded? For like 35 years, you know, you're having to go out there and play the recruiting games. And now, the, what if they come to you as a school and they're like, uh, your position, you're now in charge of when they come in and when they're here, you have to be the marketing liaison. <laughs> kind of depends on whether I'm getting paid like Nick Saban or whether I'm getting paid like an FCS coach. Um, if I'm an FCS coach, I'm not too thrilled about that. If I'm Nick Saban, hey, my players... They're getting my agent, too, so they can get the Aflac deal. The phone lines are open. Join the conversation on Cofield and Company now by calling 702-364-1100 or tweet us at Cofield and Co. Who better to talk about food than these two? It's the Fat Pack on Cofield and Company, brought to you by Nova Home Loans. C'è la luna e mezzo mare, mamma mia, mi maritate. Figlia mia, cuttature, mamma mia, ti pensa tu. All right, let's get into our uh, food story of the day. The other day, it turned, or uh, today, yeah. The other day, it turned out to be a clothing story because we were talking about the rat pack and how Natalie attired, even if you are in the fat pack, you have to be. Uh, but we're all over the place. We're all over the place. Good one today. Uh, actually, kind of a combo of the Fat Pack and the Rat Pack and food and, well, whatever. Uh, James Corden's uh, one of our guys because he's a little bit chubby. Um, he likes to eat. He's a funny guy. He likes to sing. I like that candy. Are you a Corden guy? I like the carpool karaoke, but I was such a Craig Ferguson guy, and he's such a huge departure that uh, I'm not a regular watcher. Damn you. Damn you. It's Okay. We each have our favorites. I was an Arsenio guy. I miss him. (laughs) There you go. All right. Apparently, Corden, in uh, trying to have fun with an ongoing bit, has now been called on the carpet for? Being a food racist. Um, Yes. Apparently, 
There's been a segment that that Corden has done regularly on the show called Spill Your Guts or Fill Your Guts, uh, essentially where he takes a celebrity and asks them a question they might not want to answer, and they have the choice between answering this uncomfortable question or eating some type of disgusting, I'm going to put that in air quotes because of the story we're doing here, disgusting food. Uh, one segment that he did featured a number of Asian foods, uh, one called balutz, which is a uh, fermented egg, uh, some pig's blood, some other things that, uh, frankly, did not look all that appetizing to James Corden or to Jimmy Kimmel, uh, who was part of the segment. And uh, this caught the attention of, and I'm using, this, these are not my words because I, I just don't like the word influencer in the first place but uh a filipino chinese social media influencer named kim sarah who said that cordon was ridiculing uh the filipino culture started an online petition got forty thousand people to sign it saying that uh cordon should stop doing the segment okay so i'm not here to tell you whether he should or should not uh stop doing the segment i'm not here to tell you whether anyone should be offended because I am a white dude with no connection to Filipino or Chinese food in my heritage. So not my area to weigh in on. Um, but Corden went on and talked to Howard Stern and said, you know what? The next time we're doing it, we're going to do it differently. Uh, you know, we're not here to not here to make anybody upset. He said, we are a show about light and love and joy. Um, and, and you would think, hopefully, that's where the story ends. But that's not where the story is ending, <laughs> according to what we're reading, um, because the influencer, uh, Kim Sarah, says that that's not enough. Uh, she wants a public apology from James Corden for, for what he's done, for, for oh, wow. the slight and or perceived slight, such as the case might be. Um, Cofield, I am completely fine with the way Corden responded to say, you know what? We didn't realize we were going to be offending someone. We're going to change it. We're going to do it differently next time. Because to me, if you start a petition, the idea of a petition is you want change. And right. if you accomplish that change, uh, I don't know that it's your perspective to keep pushing on that to say, well, no, 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 that wasn't what I wanted. I want more. No, you got the change. You said he was being offensive and he chose to act in response to that to say, you know what? Right or wrong, we absolutely are going to do it differently. We don't want to offend anybody. You want to keep asking? OK, but I don't think you're right for it. Would you apologize? Would you uh, cave? He called it a non-apology. Uh, she, I should say, right. called it a non-apology from Corden. I don't think there's a need for it. I don't think that, uh, she, he made the change. She wanted something to be different. 40,000 people, let me just say, because this isn't one versus one, 40,000 people wanted something to be different. And it is different. So if you've accomplished what you wanted, which was to mobilize and say, we want this to be different, and the change has been made, then, you know, if people organize a petition to go and they want something, a law to be changed, do they need the legislators to apologize for it? Or they, <laughs> do they need the legislators to change the law? Well, that's what happened. You got the change. You got right. what you wanted. And again, your prerogative to keep pushing for it. But that's where I draw the line and say, no, I don't think James Corden is in a spot to have to do that uh, because he did what you what you wanted him to do. And there clearly was not an intent uh, to demean anybody. 
Can you imagine if uh, that's the way it worked with legislators? <laughs> they change the law, and then they also have to apologize if they were on the other side or or if they originally had you know voted in something that you didn't agree with. Uh, you, I think you'd be waiting a little while on the apologies. This law will not go into effect until you, Senator Poopy Pants, apologize for what you've done. Let's get back into the Stanley Cup Finals. Game two is on the way. Canadians and the Lightning and Brian Blessing will talk a little gambling. We'll get us ready for... Uh, another test for the Canadians if they can be in this series. We're actually going to find out tonight. Blessings up in less than five. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. Yeah, I still have one year left in my deal, and I'm happy I was able to contribute and help my team and, and do the right thing this season, right? If I don't have fun playing, then that'll be it, right? And uh, if I still can help my team and, and enjoy what I do every day, and that's what's going to dictate when I hang them up or keep playing the thing. You're listening to Cofield and Company, live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center on ESPN Las Vegas. BGK goalie Marc-Andre Fleury. Talking about future plans. He likes it here. Robin Leonard likes him. They like each other. We'll get to that in just a couple minutes, but let's talk about the uh, big story of the night last night and today. Brian Blessing, hockey expert, gambling expert, joins us every Wednesday from Sports Grid. That's on uh, Sirius XM Channel 204. Brian, how you doing, buddy? Steve, Adam, how you guys doing today? We're good. We're good. Uh, all right. So tell me, are you surprised that Marc Andre Fleury won the Vesna? Did he deserve the Vesna? What's the word across the league? I was one for one for two. I thought Stone was a gut cinch to win the Selkie. I really did. Um, but I thought that Fleury would win the Vesna, a finalist with Grubauer and Vasilevsky. It's a voting thing, Steve. It was right there. It was kind of a coin flip. And I really thought, because it was a voting thing, that there'd be a dose of sentimentality for the guy at 36, 17-year career, Hall of Famer. Yeah. And I, I, there was a little of that. And I thought he was going to win it. And yeah, he's a deserving winner. We were talking about this earlier, Brian, and saying that we feel like Marc-Andre Fleury has more work to do than Andre Vasilevsky has to do because of the fact that the Golden Knights have the defensemen jump up in the play so much and can, you know, at times leave Marc-Andre Fleury sort of out to out to dry on some odd man rushes, etc. Would you say the same in terms of what you've watched between how Tampa plays and how Vegas plays? Well, the one thing I would say, just to be fair about it, is Vasilevsky played against Florida and uh, Carolina, two of the best teams in the league. In Vegas, you know, the West was no great shakes this year. So, I mean, you can sit there and tug and poke at it a million different ways. Fleury had a boatload of shutouts. He played great. Uh, Vasilevsky runs a touch hot and cold. But I, I think from a supporting cast, in the regular season, Vegas had more points than them. So it's kind of a coin flip at him. It really was. We get back to Stanley Cup here tonight, game two, with uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. And um, what do you think about what you, what you saw out of game one from Montreal Canadiens? Because it, it definitely seemed to me like there were long stretches of hockey where the Tampa Bay Lightning's depth really showed up in game one. Well, if I'm the Golden Knights players, if they were able to get across the border, I hope they're up to the cottage having a good time and not watching this because they should be sick to their stomachs, <laughs> I, honestly. I mean, Tampa Bay is physical. 
uh, and physicality was not part of the Golden Knights series with the Canadians. Tampa Bay played Florida. Tampa Bay and the Islanders had the tougher road to get here. And on the way into game one, I, I thought Tampa Bay was markedly better. And the question we were asking on our shows, was it what Montreal did or what Vegas didn't do? I thought it was what Vegas didn't do. That was confirmed watching the game the other night. Tampa Bay made one mistake turning it over at the blue line. It's the only goal Montreal scored. Vegas did that 20 times a game against these guys. I mean, it's infuriating when you think back how they carelessly turned the puck over at the blue line and never made the adjustment until it was too late. Who's they, the players or the coaches? Combo card. I mean, you know, you're out there, read the play, dump it in. And honestly, I mean, to me, the board should be going up and down the bench. If you don't dump it in, you're not playing. I don't, I, for the life of me, I just don't understand how they never made that adjustment. It was so readily apparent. It was obvious after game two, Montreal sits back. They don't even try to score. It, they will get you in the counter. And the problem is Tampa Bay made that mistake once. They won't make this mistake a handful of times in this entire series. And, oh, by the way, their power play is spectacular. And the Canadians are undisciplined. Vegas couldn't take advantage of that because the power play was asleep at the switch. And if Montreal is going to be undisciplined against these guys, I don't know how big the broom you got in the studio is. <laughs> uh, what are the changes that need to get back to being a, a decent power play for the Golden Knights? Is it personnel? Again, is it coaching? Uh, it's all the above, Steve. I mean, you, you can't you know produce four power play goals you know, throughout the run of the playoffs like that into the semifinals and think you're going to make the final. If, I think the puck movement's slow. I think they need, truly, they need a sniper, and not just for the power play. Four goals were scored by forwards in the series against the Canadians. Caulfield from the Habs had four himself. Um, so, clearly, what McCrimmon, McPhee, the two-headed monster, thinks they're going to have to do, we can all sit here and say this is going to be a good team, for a number of years, but is it a team that's just really good in the regular season? But are they good enough to play the brand of hockey it takes to win the silver shiny thing? And the answer the last few years is no, and it was kind of a repeat of the bubble last year. So, Brian, as we look at the composition of that, uh, I mean, it seems as though that is the idea behind Max Pacioretty's role for this team at this point. Not to say you only have one guy who can be the sniper on the power play, but that's, you know, kind of the spot he occupies here. So how do you look at adjusting this roster? We talked earlier about the fact that, you know, because they are so capped out that they're going to have to be creative once again this offseason, uh, you know, working with some of the longer-term contracts that are on the books. Well, I mean, you're not capped out if you don't have $12 million of goalies, and that's obviously going to be the big offseason discussion. And... You can make trades. It can be done. They can massage the cap. It just comes down to you know what they ultimately deem to be the, the approach to move forward. You look at a guy like Riley Smith. I mean, you know, terrific player. He's got one year left on his contract at $5 million a season. What do you do with Riley Smith? I mean, I don't know. you got to watch him closely, I think, through draft day because you don't want a guy like that walking out the door for nothing. So if they don't extend him, you know, he's probably going to get moved as a rental at the trade deadline, or maybe you do it as a preemptive strike before the season. 
I'm not saying they should trade Riley Smith. I'm saying the cap and his contract dictates you don't want a guy like that walking out the door for nothing. Brian Blessings with us, Sports Grid. It's on Sirius XM 204. They uh, come out of the uh, K-Shop studios here in Las Vegas. Hey, you're as close to Bill Foley as anyone else in the media. I'm going to use the word. I don't mean it to be an insult, but do you think this time around Foley will be reasonable when talking about the two-goalie thing and $12 million and you know, basically just lay it out in front of him? Bill, it, it didn't work. Well, he's about winning in everything he does business, sports, whatever, he's also was relatively new to hockey and would listen to McPhee, McCrimmon, and soak it all in. I will tell you this. He knows players around the league now. He knows the game. He works hard at it. He's a student of the game. Uh, I think at the end of the day, he's about winning. And, you know, at the, right now, how much equity was built up building the expansion team and the run you're on? I'm not saying anybody's job's in trouble, but the bottom line is, the plan changed in year one, and they've been sitting here knocking on the door, and you're close. And he's willing to spend to the cap. He's willing to spend a fortune. So pretty much it comes down to results. The one quandary I do believe he has, Steve, is he said to Flurry, you know, I want you to re- retire as a Golden Knight. Now, there's a loyalty thing there, and what's best for the organization. And Flurry's got the leverage with the no-move clause. But at some point, if you're moving on and you're doing one goalie and the determination is which one is it, if Leonard, per se, is the youngest guy, if you were ever to move Flurry, you want to do the guy a solid. You send him back to Pittsburgh where he could run for mayor. You know, So you want to take care of these guys. You don't want to get a reputation that you treat these guys poorly. So it's a bit of a quandary. But at the end of the day, it's about winning. Hey, very offbeat, but I wanted to get uh, both you and Candy on this one before we get out of here. Brian Blessings with us. Uh, we started a discussion yesterday. We were talking about the uh, the whole concept of the odds boost for the player. What do you think of the odds boost that has taken off in uh, many states around the country? We really don't have it here. Brian, are you down with it, or or is it uh, you know kind of a warning to players that it's really not all it's cracked up to be? You, you lost me. I'm sorry. I really, I apologize. Oh, it's all right. No, I was just, uh, we, we started having a discussion yesterday about the odds boost that's going on at a lot of different sports books around the country. And I just wonder what you think of the boosting of the odds. Are they sucker bets? Like, what do you tell the players? Oh, well, listen, the, the Golden Knights numbers in that series, that was ridiculous. So you're telling me the Golden Knights were minus 475 against Montreal. And then you open this series price and Tampa Bay's minus 260. The one that you get at the end of the year. You could have some books are massaging numbers, trying to attract action on the other side because there's liabilities on futures. But, I mean, hockey's the best sport to bet, Steve. Honestly, I mean, if you're going to find soft numbers, you don't find them that often. But sometimes you find them in hockey, I'll tell you that. Brian, hey, we appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Guys, always a pleasure. Have a good day. Okay. I explained that poorly, Candy. You got what I was saying, right? The boost odds, especially, you know, a place like Colorado. What do you tell the player? So, for those in Vegas who don't know much about what an odds boost is, I'm sorry because you don't get those opportunities around here. Books uh, market differently. So, essentially, let's say that, you know, I'm going to make up some fake numbers here. Trey Young to have a triple-double tonight would have been plus 300. 
But now it's plus 500 because we're doing an odds boost for you tonight. You're going to have the opportunity to make more money off your bet than you would have because we've decided as a marketing thing that we're going to try to get people to uh, to come play at our sports book because we have a better price. Um, we've talked to John Murray from the Westgate Superbook on this show before about it, and he is not a big fan. Uh, now, they have started doing a little bit of that in Colorado, but overall... Uh, I know our friend Sammy P, who's on here on Tuesdays, doesn't like him at all. And he thinks they're sucker bets and he thinks you're trying to draw people in, um, you know, on wagers that they otherwise should not be taking part in. You got to you got to see what you're getting the bet on. Right. Like You have to see what the actual bet is. Uh, I would not blindly trust the fact that the odds are being boosted on something as a sign of anything good. Right. Like and a lot of them, you know, if you're saying you're boosting it from plus 200 to plus 250, big damn whoop for the guy who's betting 50 bucks on it right like it's not that big a deal uh, in the end so no i mean look when you see odds boosts understand this it's marketing it's nothing more than marketing it is money being spent by that sports book to try to bring you in as a customer or to keep you from going to a different book as a customer that's it that's what all of these odds boosts are it's no different than uh, than risk-free bets and, uh, you know, match deposits and et cetera, et cetera. It's all a way to try to get your business. Visit lvsportsnetwork.com for access to the latest podcasts and best interviews.